This is the We Make Success Happen podcast with Matt Callanan. We Make Success Happen podcast. Hello, welcome to the We Make Success Happen podcast. This is the We Make Success Happen podcast with Matt Callanan. My name is Matt Callanan. I'm a former international DJ and musician turned filmmaker with We Make Film Happen and founder of the Kindness Project. We make good happen. 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 Coming up on today's episode is Rory Coleman, a world record-breaking runner and celebrity performance coach. Hear the extraordinary transformation from a former smoker and drinker to a man that has now done 1,045 marathons. 254 ultra marathons, has nine Guinness World Records, and has done 15 marathon disasters. Hear how he decided one day to give up the booze and smoking and become a runner. How you create your own luck. Working with Sir Ranulph Fiennes. How he got his nine Guinness World Records. And visualizing the person you want to be. This is Rory Coleman. Hello and welcome to We Make Success Happen podcast. Today, with incredible human, Rory Coleman. Hi. Hello. (laughs) Good handshake. Yeah, I like it. So I think you've got probably the best email signature that I've ever come across. Do you want to describe what you've got in that signature? The signature is a bit like a, I don't know, maybe it's a sales line uh, but it's all the things I'm really proud of so it's a bit like my running qualifications but it's got my number of marathons uh, 1017 uh, number of ultra marathons so that's 246 of those uh, ultra marathons my nine Guinness World Records and 15 marathon disciples so if I'm talking to people who want to talk to me about any of those fields I send them the email and they sort of go wow that's really that's really cool and hopefully that sort of tells them the message that I'm qualified to talk to them about what they want to talk to me about, if that makes sense. Well, it's very impressive, all those figures. Are you actually going to be happy? Is there a figure that you're going to be happy? It is what it is. I mean, at the end of it, it says 24 years dry. And that's, that's probably the, the fact that I'm really, really pleased about. And I could go on with lots of other numbers, but I think it's sort of, it might be overkill. I think the thousand marathons is the one that, people are impressed by. Some, some people say, but how many have you done? And I sort of say, well, that is actually my total, um, <laughs> which is quite interesting. But back in the day, back 20 years ago, it was so rare for anybody to have run even 100 marathons, whereas now there's lots of people that have done it. You haven't always been like this, have you? What, so what, can you talk about this kind of epiphany moment that you had to transform your, your whole life? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, a pretty well-known story if people know me, but I, I got to a stage in 1992, actually, where I suppose, you, looking back, you'd say that I was depressed. But back in 1992, and coming from an all-boys school where failure wasn't allowed and you had to be strong, you couldn't admit defeat. But I think I was defeated, and I'd sort of reached that bottom point and I remember during the Freddie Mercury tribute concert, 
which is the 20th of April 1992, joined the Metallica set, I phoned the Samaritans. Yeah. And for, for me, or anybody like me, owning up at the time to say that you'd phone the Samaritans would, would have been, well, that would have been so embarrassing. Even now, it's, sort of, it's not that easy to, to talk about, but I did phone the Samaritans, and they sort of said, look, it's a great call. We know you need help, but actually you're drunk. So, um, were you drunk at the time? Did you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I was using alcohol to anaesthetise the world that I put myself into. So, I was married. I got uh, some kids. I worked hard. I was successful with my job, but I was unhappy with my lot. And rather than sort it out, I decided that actually. If I had enough money to go and booze, if I had enough money to buy cigarettes, the world was all right. But in fact, it wasn't. And what happens is you get into this downward spiral. And I think a lot of people now are in even bigger downward spirals. I would say that my alcoholism, if it was alcohol alcoholism, was more booze binge. Whereas I look at some people nowadays and they're doing what I did on a binge every day of their lives. Mm. But I was in that I was in that sort of downward spiral. I friends Samaritans, they said, look, speak to AA. And the guy at AA told me a load of stuff that I didn't want to hear. So I quite happily put the phone down on him and phoned the Samaritans back and said, <laughs> I don't like them. Um, I want to speak to you. And they said, look, you're drunk. You need to speak to AA. Yeah. So I thought, well, sod that. I'll do it on my own. So I cleaned myself up for about, I don't know, six months. Went on a really disastrous wet holiday to um, Devon and thought I'll just go to the pub and four pints of lager later I did another sort of 18 months of uh, downward spiral until Christmas 93. And how old were you at this point? <clears throat> I was 31. Yeah, okay. I was 31. I saw maybe it's a mid first midlife crisis and I thought well I feel so ill. I had I had um, uh, like the Russian, I think it was Russian flu going around or something. So I was really, really chesty, smoking, using my son's inhaler to open up my airways. And I just thought, this is crazy. This is what it's like to have lung cancer. And on Boxing Day, I stubbed out my last cigarette, which was just so easy. Was it easy? It was. It's, the, the problem with people have with addiction is that they need to reach that point where they just say, I'm not going to do this anymore. When you get there, it's really easy to pack up. So, but you've got to you've got to reach that. I call it point zero. So I just reached that point zero, stubbed it out, and never looked back. Why Boxing Day? I just, I don't know. It was just one of those days. I just thought, God, I feel so ill. And by then, I'd started hating the person looking back at me in the mirror. Mm. Photograph on my website is of me on that Boxing Day. I just look at that person, thinking, Christ, how did I get that bad? But I decided to change. And then I thought, well, if I can give up cigarettes, I think I can give up booze as well. I gave it up six months before. I'm not going to give up now because it's Boxing Day and Christmas and New Year's Eve's an excuse to drink. Mm -hmm. So I got fairly hammered on, on uh, New Year's Eve. Mm -hmm. But then when I went back to work, rather than go to the pub after work, which was the culture at the time, I went home and I thought I'm going to go for a jog because I was 15 stone. I was 95 kilos and I thought, well, if I go for a jog, I'd seen loads of runners. Running was a big craze back in the 80s and 90s. They're all sort of slim guys. I'll go for a, I'll go for a jog. So I stood on the scales, 15 stone, 
went outside the front door in my coat, my jeans and my work shoes, <laughs> ha hammered down the pavement for a hundred steps and passed out virtually on, on, on the ground. I was just so unfit. In your work shoes as well? Well, I didn't have any running gear. I, I, I had no, no knowledge of running whatsoever. I just went... So had you jogged before then or no. done any running? Okay. No, none at all. But you no. thought that might be the solution? Yeah, I, I thought this is going to be my therapy. This is the way out of, the, out of this dark spot. And I felt absolutely elated. It was brilliant. It was a real light bulb moment. And I walked back home, stood on the scales, still 15 stone. But it didn't matter because I'd found my thing. And the next day I did 200 steps and then 400. And within three months, I'd run a half marathon in under... Two hours, I lost three stone. I went on this ridiculous wow. diet. Um, I'm now a qualified nutrition expert, and I went on this ridiculous 500-calorie-a-day diet, shed loads of extra excess body fat, and felt absolutely empowered. And like most, most people at the time, I'd looked at the London Marathon, which was the thing. And not like now when you've got half a million people trying to sign up. Um, I filled in the sheet of A4, paid my £13, I think it was at the time, and I was in. So I was booked in on the 2nd of April 1995, so I thought, well, I better do a marathon before then, <laughs> because I don't want to die on TV. Yeah. So I, I ran at Telford on the 6th of November 1994, got around just over four hours, and simply loved it. I, I died at 20 miles like most people do and I did all the things that were wrong that um, you shouldn't do but it didn't matter because I thought I actually wrote down that day in a diary I thought this you know this is my achievement today nobody can take it away from me and I, I loved the thought of uh, going back and doing another one and uh, I got I found out I was quite good at it so I, I lost loads more weight started running lots of miles and then I, I jogged around London in 3.54 and that evening on the highlights. <laughs> jogged. I jogged around. No, it was literally like a jog around. I loved it. And and on the highlights package in the evening with the London Marathon music, there I was coming over the finish. Really? And I thought, I love this. This is, this is cool. So the next week I ran another one. <laughs> and very quickly I was starting to run one a week. What um, were your kind of friends and family saying? Because I guess some of your friends and family had seen you I mean, had they sort of known how bad it was, or but they must have seen this kind of new kind of Rory taking place. Yeah, it, it's. Um, I suppose for my parents, they were sort of thinking, "Oh, thank God, he's sorting himself out." For my for my um, friends at the time, I I pruned a lot of my friends. I got rid of the people I worked with. I, I was in business, and I quickly stopped doing that business because the people that I was in business with also had bad habits and they were enabling me to be badly behaved. Mm. So I stopped that very quickly. Um, I did a bit of a makeover, did my hair, got rid of the moustache and the beard and um, came out of that cloaking device that that, that makes with people. Uh, I got rid of all my vinyl. Oh, no. I know. Well, that's not good. I know, but the, <laughs> I've, well, I've since gone back and bought it all again. Yeah. But all of that vinyl reminded me of the bad times associated with that music. So essentially, then, you were shredding your skin. Yeah, it's, 
it's like pruning myself back to uh, basics, I suppose. And the, I think the interesting thing is that you can't change the past. And this is what I try and coach people with now. It's about trying to shape that future. Um, I, could, I suppose I could have made a, a huge list at the time of things I wanted to change about myself. But maybe it's one of those transformations that um, you know, Madonna or David Bowie did in the past where they sort of go from one character to another one. And I just thought, well, let's try and think of all the things I do at the moment that I don't want to do anymore. So I sort of you make a list of those. Um, and what sort of things were on that list then? Well, I suppose really the easy ones were drink, uh, drinking, smoking and eating rubbish food. Um, so those are the sort of three things I did I didn't want to do anymore. But then I thought, well, rather than try and focus in on those, because that's quite a negative thing to do, mm. I want to try and cut those negative things out and then think about the things I did want to do. Um, I wanted to get fit. Uh, I wanted to become uh, more solvent, maybe. Uh, I wanted to become happier. And I wanted to try and achieve things, because I'm very much one of those people that wants to achieve and chip those things into my headstone where it gives me some kind of epitaph I suppose into saying what did I do while I was on the planet and I think really I probably wasted my 20s because I'd, I'd gone from being maybe immature at 18 maybe through to university days and not really knowing quite what to do what that path might be because life doesn't come with a handbook does it it's all, it's all about trying to be responsible for yourself. And I, and I just didn't know what to do. But I'm sure loads of people in their 20s are exactly the same position, aren't they? They maybe. haven't kind of found their purpose or... Yeah, maybe, but I'm, but I'm not those people. Mm. And also I'm not somebody that reads books. I've written a book, but, you know, which is really hard to do. But I don't read loads of books. So when I went to university, I found out you had to read loads of books. It's like, <laughs> uh, that's not me. Mm. I went to do a degree in photography. I love taking the photographs. I'm a great photographer, but don't ask me to analyse other people's photos because actually I'd have to then write about it and read about them. And also, I'm not all that interested in other people's photographs. I'm interested in my world. It was really about trying to think more clearly about what I was doing. And I think the running gave me that time out to get some clarity and then try and find some direction. Mm. And certainly, it's nearly 25 years now. The 20, last 25 years have just been an amazing experience. And with lots and lots of positive things and lots of obstacles that have happened in those times that I've used running and uh, as therapy to get me through. So out of that amazing list, what's the, the thing that you're most proud of then? Ooh, if you ask any runner what they're most proud of, it's probably their marathon PB. Um, I did that on the 3rd of March 1996, 324.21. Not particularly fast as far as marathon running is going, but as fast as I could go, that's my personal best. I don't know, I, I ran London to Brighton on the road. That was a really famous race. I did that in 8.55. That's 55 miles. Some of the biggest things I've done are the Marathon de Sable, the world's toughest foot race. I've done that 15 times. Yeah, do you want to describe that to people that haven't come across it? It's one of those things, actually, that's becoming more and more known. What people will say is that they've run across the Sahara Desert. You haven't really. You've run 156 miles of the Western Sahara in Morocco. But you're running for a week. You run six 
run for six days and it's five marathon stages over six days with one of them being a double marathon. Uh, you carry everything you need for the week apart from your water which you're given every six miles every 10k. So what kind of weight is that? Because I imagine it's quite hot as well. <laughs> it's, 50, it's between 55 and 60 degrees. Wow. It's incredibly hot. So if you put your fan oven on 200, lower the lid when it's nice and hot, feel that warm air, that's how hot it is. It feels like your head's going to explode in, in the midday heat. And you're carrying uh, a minimum of six and a half kilos on your back. Mm. Uh, and the sand, well, the sand just eats feet. <laughs> <laughs> but for a lot of people, it's their, it's their big life challenge when they get to 40. It's midlife crisis man's <laughs> voyage of discovery. They're trying to find out who they are. And in the, in the desert, in the dark of night, in the middle of 52 miles, you find out what you're made of. I love it. Um, I've literally come back from my 15th marathon to Sable a month ago, and it was just an amazing experience. I, I just loved every single minute of it. The We Make Success Happen podcast is kindly brought to you by We Make Film Happen. We've filmed everyone from Richard Branson to George Clooney, we film bands on top of igloos through to filming adventurers going up active volcanoes. So if you want an amazing message through video, give me a shout. I'm on hello at wemakefilmhappen.com. So just take us through, you're kind of running through the night as well then. On one of the days, yeah. It, um, they start the race every morning at nine o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, and about half past eight, it's, it's, it's cool and you know, it's cold at night. Cold by Cardiff's standards, but it's, it's cold. <laughs> it's cold at night, and then really about half past eight in the morning, it's like they turn the grill pan on, and then by eleven and twelve o'clock, uh, it's very hot. Plus, your own core temperature is really hot too, so your body's heating up. And when you're starting to reach that thirty-nine degrees, then you're into hyperthermia. That's being too hot, and your body can't dissipate the heat. Uh, into the atmosphere because the atmosphere is too hot so you tend to cook and it's that cooking that people really struggle with so because i imagine a, that's life-threatening isn't it oh totally life-threatening yeah it's claimed two people have died at marathon de sable in the last uh, 30 33 years yeah people are you are playing a little bit of russian roulette with your life but it's like anything else in the world or anything that you do you you have to do your ten thousand hours it's that famous thing, isn't it? You know, you sort of do the 10,000 hours and you'd be a great musician or a painter or linguist or whatever it is. I've, I've done my 10,000 hours of running. Um, I haven't done 10,000 hours of running in the Sahara, but I've done a lot of coaching and I take about 100 people there every year and show them how to do it. I fast track people uh, to success because I've worked out what socks to use, what shoes to wear and what to take and what not to take. It's a bit like climbing Everest, isn't it? It's Everest season at the moment. People are summiting and they're, you know, they haven't learned how to be a mountaineer on their own. They've gone and found out how to be a mountaineer from other mountaineers that have been successful. So that's what I tend to do. So what's the mindset when you're doing not just those kind of marathons, but what's the mindset that you've got and you tell other people to get into to just keep on going, to work through that pain? Well, I don't, I'm not quite sure if it's pain. I think I think it's in maybe it's enjoyable. Um, nobody's forcing me to be there. There isn't, a, there isn't a gun to my head saying, "You must do this marathon. You must finish." I, I did the 
Stratford-upon-Avon marathon where I used to live at the weekend. And yeah, it was jolly tough, you know, about 18, 19 miles. But I continued going because I I wanted to finish. I'd chosen to be there and failure isn't an option. I've set off 1,017 times to run a marathon. I've got there every single time. You know, a DNF, a do not finish, I don't really quite understand those. I think people DNF because they've underestimated the task in hand. You know, you've, you've set yourself a goal that's um, too big. Maybe I'm too safe. Maybe, maybe part of me being a starter completer is that I'll only give myself something that I know that I can do. So I think that's, that's an interesting way of looking at things. There are races in the world that maybe I could have done when I was younger but that I didn't do because somebody might have said, well, I don't know if you'll finish. Well, I'm not a don't know if you're finished type kind of person. I like to say, I'm, I'm going to go and do this and then go and do it. So it's a bit like being here on time this morning. I was here well before then because that's part of my, I don't know, part of my ethos or part of my values. And that's something that I, I like to pride myself on. I think maybe that people maybe don't have that those standards and maybe it's everything's just a little bit easier. I don't know. It, it's quite interesting how people think. I've learned so much in the last 10 years doing all of this coaching and life coaching and performance training about why people do things. It's, it's fascinating. Do you want to tell us about something that happened in April 2016? Yeah, it... it... It, this was really un, unusual. I, I got to this sort of stage in 2015 where life was cooking along quite nicely. I'm busy at work. My wife's pregnant with um, my, my son, uh, Jack. Uh, and, uh, you know, we just got married and we're living in Cardiff and everything's swimming along. And I remember writing at the time, I was finished off this, uh, my book, and I sort of said, look, I'm sure change is going to happen, but I'm not quite sure what it is. I feel like I've been on this island, this deserted island, where there's been just me. And because of my job and because of what I do, I've had to invite lots of other people onto my island, lots of clients onto my island. And actually, it feels a bit crowded for me because I'm quite a secluded person. I like, as a child, I like playing on my own, you know. So I thought, God, this island's getting a bit crammed. I'll have to find somewhere else to go. And I went out to Marathon de Sable in... Uh, April 2016 and had an asthma attack. It was really quite unusual. Never had asthma before. They put me on some oxygen and gave me a, a Ventolin pump and I was okay. But after a week of being back in the UK, suddenly I had this horrendous pain that it felt like the, the skin on my back was being peeled off. I was in so much in, in agony, so much so that I went to a&E and they sort of said look we think you've got a, a bad back it's um here are some some drugs and the next morning it was so bad I went to my own GP and he said um he said I think you're really ill he said I think you might have motor neuron disease wow. so I thought that oh, doesn't sound too good so I phoned my brother and asked him about motor neuron disease and he sort of said well, that's that's a really painful way to go to which I wasn't you know I was now crying in the car mm. but the, the the GP came out and tapped the window and he said, look, gave me some printouts of a website and he said, um, I think you've got Guillain-Barre syndrome. And I thought, well, I don't know what that is. So I, I Googled it, uh, read the first three lines 
and then quickly close the window because it said that uh, it's a really, really serious neurological disorder where my autoimmune system uh, had attacked my, uh, it demyelinates your nerves. So anything that's coming off your brain in broadband, down the, down the nervous system, literally it, it cracks all of the nerve sheaths. And by the time it gets to your hands and feet, uh, it's gone. It's in dial-up mode or it doesn't exist at all. And you're paralyzed from the neck down. So I went from feeling sort of quite drunk and strange to a hospital bed, a university hospital, Wales, with a wife that was six months pregnant, thinking, I wonder what's going on. Only I really wasn't thinking because I was on so many drugs to numb the pain and numb this state that I'd found myself in because literally nothing worked. My face had dropped. Uh, it was difficult to breathe. I couldn't swallow. And I was very lucky that they didn't do a tracheotomy uh, to help me breathe. So all that, my, all that I could think of was, actually, I just want to get out of here. So I think I was a complete pain in the arse, actually, if I was being honest to the doctors. And for four weeks, I fought. I fought everybody. I fought the doctors. I fought the nurses. Um, I fought myself. Uh, I remember trying to escape one night, uh, crawling along the floor. I don't know where I thought I was going, but I was trying to escape. And after, after four weeks, they said, if you can walk out of here on a Zimmer frame, would you go home? I think they were quite glad to get rid of me and I was quite glad to go. So I went. Is it because you didn't want to accept? No, of course I didn't. I'm already the runner. I, want to, I, want, I thought, give me a few drugs. Tell me what, tell me what I've got to do. I'll do a few, few laps of uh, Clandaff Fields. And I'll be running again next month, clocking up another marathon. I was stuck on 976. This was like so rude. I was set to do my thousandth marathon, uh, you know, in September in 2016. What's going on? So, uh, no, I couldn't. I was completely flummoxed by it. So I went home and for five weeks I sat in a chair or I laid on the floor. And I found a great... Uh, physiotherapist in Newport, a guy called Yako Baz. And he said, come down, we'll put you in a sling. We'll put you in a big baby sling and you can walk up and down as long as you like, all day if you want. Just come and walk up and down. So I could do it for about an hour and a half, really frustrated, trying to take these steps and actually swinging around in circles because I had no strength whatsoever. Could you walk unassisted then at that no, point? No, really? hopeless. Wow. And then I got worse. I got to the stage where um, literally it was like somebody cut the strings and I hit the floor. My wife would run down the road and try and get some neighbours to come in and pick me up. Uh, I fell over a couple of times and cracked my head open. Oh, it's such a mess. What was kind of going through your head at this point? Well, I was completely in denial. It's like, I'm sure, I'm sure tomorrow this is going to be okay. It, you know, it's going to get better because I'm a bright big picture thinker and do you think that mindset kind of helped because i think sometimes people accept kind of labels they'll sit victim, in it yeah. yeah and yeah. do you think that stubborn kind of denial do you think yeah. that worked in your favor then i think it did uh, yako is yako is really good because he he's a dutch guy and he said to me uh how's how's it going and i sort of it's not it's not going very well and he said uh, do you think it's going to get better in your time frame 
And I said, I, I don't think so. He said, do you think you need to go back to hospital? And I, I just sobbed, mm. sobbed on his shoulder. And then phoned, phoned the hospital and said, can I, can I come back, please? <laughs> and I, I went back for some tests and they said, um, you're, you're really ill again. Mm. So I, I think I've had a dip with the GBS. And then I actually got it again. It's called subacute inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, SIDP. So you have lots of uh, IVIG. You have somebody else's autoimmune system injected into you mm -hmm. for five days. Lots of people's. And then I was put on a lot of steroids, a lot of corticosteroids, where literally I went from, it was almost like somebody recharging my battery. And I went through that process of accepting where I was. You know, I spent four weeks in hospital, five weeks at home. And I thought, Do you know what? If I'm stuck in this wheelchair forever, I see lots of other people in wheelchairs and they look quite happy. I know lots of, lots of other ultramarathon runners and they're, pretty miserable so why don't I just accept where I am and um, my wife was Jenny was just unbelievable she helped me through all the the real dark days and I went back to hospital and with a completely fresh mindset um, and just thought right what have I got to do and you try what you do is you try and work out what the secret is and there's one secret to Guillain-Barre syndrome, you learn to stand up. And with the help of Phil Collins, I did it over a weekend. There's a, there was a physiotherapist bed. I could go in there and for three days, I sat on the edge of the bed and I learned to stand up on the Zimmer frame. And I could hold myself for about five minutes before my arms felt like they were falling off and then sit down. So I'd listen to one track from Phil Collins. <laughs> it was actually Phil Collins. Yeah, only you and I would know. It's great. It's a great song. I love Phil. He's one of my heroes. And stood up, did this, sat down. And for three days, the doctors and nurses were passing the door thinking, what on earth is he doing? I was, don't worry, I'm okay. And I, just, I did this for three And after three days, I could stand up. And I thought, if I can stand up, I can take a step. And if I can take a step, I can walk. And I walked out. I, I walked out on the Zimmer frame, and then I went to Rookwood, which is a rehab hospital in uh, Clandaff. Very sort of um, one of those, I say, tallyho chaps. Bit of a Second World War hospital type of atmosphere to it. Very laid back. And I went into some really intense physiotherapist there, uh, physiotherapy there. And then I started walking home. A friend of mine smuggled me out. And I went walking in, in Lander Fields and I said, right, I'm going to be in a wheelchair today. In a week's time, I'm going to be on sticks or, or on a Zimmer frame. A week after that, I'm going to be on sticks. Then I'm going to get rid of a stick and then I'm going to walk. And I took four steps 21 days later. Very wobbly, but I, I walked between the bars. I had to learn to walk again. And then three months, what is it? Three months later, yeah, I did a half marathon. Three months later? Yeah, I did the Cardiff Half Marathon. I ran every step, my wife. The year before, my wife had been pregnant, and I ran with her. So she was about, I don't know, 70 months pregnant when we went round. And then she ran with me, and after three miles, we were going down the Penarth Road, and she said, uh, I thought you said you're going to walk this. You're going to walk and run? I said, no, I'm running all the way. <laughs> and uh, I ran every step, and then three weeks later, I did a marathon. And... 
I've done four, I've done 41 since. And it's not brilliant. I'm not, I'm not back to the person I was before, but it doesn't matter because I'm still doing what I want to do. And I did my thousandth marathon a year later, but that was good. It was a great family day. I was surrounded by family and friends and I've done two marathon de Sable and, and whatever. So it, it's a, it's a really unusual thing to go through. And if you said, would I go through it again? I'd probably say I would. Really? Yeah, because I, I think I learned, I've, well, I've learned a lot about myself. And boy, yeah, it makes you understand the value of friendship, of your relationship. You know, money's not important. Things aren't important. It's just that we, we, we tend to get caught up in the minutiae of things. Whereas actually, there are lots of other things to worry about. Uh, I mean, you know, I've got one of my friends right now, he was told three years ago he's got terminal prostate cancer. Mm. You know, he's amazing. He's, you know, they sort of said he's got a couple of years. He's, he's now three years on and he's done three marathons de Sable in that time. He's an amazing guy. Mm. He's got a lot to worry about because his, his lifetime's being compressed. Whereas hopefully I've got many years ahead in mine and I can still go and do what I want to do, you know, I've st I still haven't completed all those tasks I think I've set out for myself. So do you want to show me this app that you've got on your phone? Oh, on the phone, yeah. Because uh, I thought that was really interesting. And there we go. So do you want to describe for the kind of the listeners? Okay. So on, on this day count, um, I thought it was quite interesting to find out, rather than just saying I've been sort of dry for 20 years or 21 years, how many days it was, because I thought it sounded a bit more impressive. If you're talking about days, so it says it says on here it says um, day count um, eight eight nine nine. So it's eight thousand eight hundred ninety nine days since the fifth of January nineteen ninety four, which is the day that I stopped drinking. So in another, I don't know, one thousand and one days, um, I'll clock up ten thousand days, which is that's quite a nice round number going into five figures. It also says on there that it's 757 days since I was first ill with the GBS, which I can go back to a day in uh, April 2016, where I, I just felt ill and I had a tummy upset, which is the start of the Guillain-Barre syndrome. Mm. So I'm now over 750 days since then, so that's two years. And then because of the soberness, I've got 101 days to 9,000, which I have a little bit of a celebration on. Um, and I'll also have a bit of a celebration next January when I go into my Silver Jubilee year, a bit like the Queen, a bit like the Queen going into her Silver Jubilee in 77. I'll go into my Silver Jubilee year of uh, being sober, which will probably go into my signature as well. Um, but I, I think it's just interesting. And also for people who are quitting booze, I often say use this app because that jigsaw, if you imagine a jigsaw with 8,899 pieces in it, all I've got to do is have one drink and the jigsaw's broken up. So every day you're just putting in another piece, making up this lovely big picture of sobriety. And I, I love that. So it'd be a shame to, shame to wreck it. I'm only one drink away from wrecking that, the same as anybody that's given up for one day. Mm. So we're, we're in the same. It's just I've been doing it for longer. So do you use that to kind of keep yourself kind of on track then, but also have this sort of almost yeah. mini celebration every day that... I, I, maybe I could. I, to be honest, I can't really remember what it was like. It's so long ago. In 
in two or three years' time, I will have been dry longer than before. So, actually, it won't really matter, will it? I think the dynamic of life's changed now. Where I walk into, you know, Tesco or one of the one of the shops, and it's just booze overload. I think it's very, very difficult for some people nowadays. And you know, when I'm meeting people that are drinking maybe two, three, or even four bottles of wine a day, mm. you know, it's a very cheap way of anesthetizing your brain into thinking that the world. You know, you're trying to get through the, you know, literally trying to get through the day for some people. Mm. And we've got to try and make, as a society, we've got to try and make it cool not to drink because it's still a little bit cool to say that you went out with your friends and got hammered and it's all a big joke, isn't it? When actually for a lot of people, it's not a joke. Mm. And it certainly wasn't a joke for me. And it's something that I had to cut out of my behavioural process. Do you think everyone is able to do that transformation because they do you think someone's stuck in whatever situation they are in do you think everyone is able to change i think it comes down to the desire to change so i've i've met people that are really alcohol addicted and it's very very difficult for them to change because their body is they need actually need drying out uh, because if they stopped drinking, it would kill them. You know, their their bodies uh, would, would they need alcohol. But yeah, if you really want to change, you can do it. But I think for a lot of people, life's a bit softened around the edges, and it's okay just to have one drink, or it's okay just to have one cream cake. And there's always an excuse. But we all make excuses. And what I find out with people is when they work with me, they then become accountable to me. So apart from messing up for themselves, they don't want to mess up with me. And I do a lot of weight management with people. I've got some, I've got some people that are really, they're big guys. We're talking 150 kilos, you know, 20 odd stone. I know when they're cheating, <laughs> but, but I found a really good way of working with them where they photograph their food. It's dead easy with a phone nowadays, send it to me on Messenger. I look at their food, I give them a diet, they follow a similar diet, but more calorific diet to the one I did when I changed. And they send me a photograph of their activity. There were some great wearable pieces of um, technology, you know, these bracelets are fantastic, monitor your sleep. There's so much tech out there to help you out nowadays. Um, when I started, there weren't any websites or Facebook or any of those things. I just went cold turkey and did it on my own. <laughs> but maybe that resonates with people as well because they've seen that I'm just not preaching. I've done it yeah. and I've got the T-shirt and that's what they buy into. It's, it's one of those um, when Harry met Sally things. Uh, when I first started running and started running ultramarathons, everyone thought I'd gone potty. There are only really four in the UK at the time. Well, you can probably run two ultramarathons a week nowadays, and there are shed loads of people wanting to go and run because they're finding out that the time out when they're running gives them that metacognition time to process what's going on in their world because the world runs at a million miles an hour. It didn't in 1994, 95, whenever. It was an analog world where 
it was okay to get back to somebody the next day or write a letter. I mean, when was the last time you wrote a letter or used a fax or it's all archaic, isn't it? Or a telex. Nobody would probably know what a telex is. But at the time, that was the way that we communicated. I remember sending files from my job in a design consultancy in 1995, a 10 meg file down the ISDN line, it'd take all night. <laughs> or opening up a two gig picture, a two meg picture would take 30 minutes, whereas you can do it all with a phone. It's, you know, the world's moved on. It's just that maybe the pressure of that has made life difficult for people and difficult for them to take on board. We live in this celebrity culture, you know, with this, this Amy Winehouse sort of, you know, I'll dry out, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll go to rehab. Well, life's not like that. You know, we can't all afford to go to rehab to get dried out from drugs or, or booze or whatever it is that you're addicted to. You know, they're addicted to shopping, addicted to gambling. You know, the, the gambling things have just come down to two pounds and there's uproar. Well, they should never have got to 100 quid in the first place mm. is probably the answer. Do you want to talk about some of the people that you've worked with and trained then? Yeah, um, I've been very fortunate over the years to have been included in lots of people's lives that celebrity-wise that people would be interested in. I was very lucky with uh, a phone call that I had from Sir Randolph Fiennes. So this is the world's greatest living explorer that if, if you're from my sort of age bracket, you'll understand that Ran was uh, the first person to cross both polar ice caps uh, and summited Everest in uh, a few years ago. Um, he's, he's just an amazing character. He is, he is the original James Bond. Mm. And I got, a, I got a call from Ran saying that uh, he climbed the mountains, done all these polar ice caps, but he wanted to do the Marathon de Sable. Would I, would I uh, coach him? That's incredible. Was that phone call out of the blue then? Yeah, I was out on a run. If, if, and, if my, <laughs> and if my phone, I was at the top of Leckwith Hill on a hill climb, just got to the top of the hill. And he said, oh, I, I ran fines here. It was just like the phone call from, you know, the one you've waited for. I, it's like, yes, I remember punching the air thinking, this is incredible. I bet you're glad you took that call then. I did. It took me about <laughs> a millisecond to say yes, come and see me. And um, he, he popped in on a Sunday morning, sat in my kitchen sort of at home and just said how does the training work and I sort of said well it's really easy right you just you just sort of do as you're told <laughs> and he said right you're expedition leader and we went off and did MDS together and I was invited into his world and all of all of the media stuff that I tried to do myself I just I just went with Ran we went on breakfast tv and we did Amazing. loads of oh gosh yeah, it's incredible and um we ended up going to uh, Downing Street with Randolph, uh, me and my wife. And uh, he's just the most incredible, genuine, lovely man that you could ever meet that's done a whole load of dark stuff that you probably wouldn't want to know about. But yeah, Ram was good. And uh, I trained Helen Skelton for a race in Namibia. So I ended up on Blue Peter getting my badge when I was 40, 46. Oh, brilliant. You got one of those then? Got Blue Peter badge. Amazing. And then some local actors. Uh, Mark Lewis-Jones, who's been in Game of Thrones, and um, E. Gwillock with uh, Richard Harrington. I, I coached them for the desert too, as well as uh, Bertie Portal, who's uh, an actor that was recently on Collateral TV show as the na nasty major in there. 
and also who's been in uh, the Iron Iron Lady and uh, the King's Speech. So, yeah, I've, I've been I've been lucky to do work with those guys, but I'm actually sort of really fortunate just being invited into anyone's world because you do get I, I do get to hear some really incredible things over over the years that people tell you mm. you know and there and there are things that they wouldn't tell anybody else they wouldn't they certainly probably wouldn't tell their partners or their employers or whatever but they tell me because it helps me connect with them and then try and work out uh, you know a way through you know there are some people that lose incredible amounts of body weight just because you're there to listen and you're part of their team. Mm. With Serrano Fines, he kind of seems like the bloke that would know everything and probably wouldn't need any training. I think Ran's really interesting. What he does is Ran surrounds himself with people who are experts and then lets you do the decisions for him. Mm. But I think rather than sort of for him to become the desert expert or the mountain expert, um, you know, he climbed climbed Everest with Kenton Cool. Kenton's done it 12 times, succeeded every time. Well, you'd be crazy not to go with Kenton. The thing I've really appreciated about Ran was that he's, uh, he's collecting, well, collecting nearly 20 million for charity, a huge amount for Marie Curie. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, and I think he's, I think he's spent a lifetime trying to be that person, be that, that sir, that he was born, you know, he never saw his father. He was actually a, a sir before he was born. <laughs> and he's tried to live up to those expectations, um, which I think he truly has, isn't he? And, and I found out when I was at Marathon de Sable, there are 500 British runners there. People were coming up to him, just literally wanting to almost touch his cloak <laughs> uh, because he is their hero. Yeah. You know, the guy's written 25 books or whatever, and people were bringing the books up to sign. Um, I didn't have to read Rand's books. He told me the stories in the middle of the night. And I was really privileged to be part of his world. Um, and, you know, if somebody that was in a dark place in 1992 or 94 or whatever, in that really negative, horrible, hostile environment, to be now being part of... I don't know, going to Downing Street with my wife and, you know, I just thought, wow, I'm so lucky. And I think I think I am lucky. Um, I think I'm a very lucky person. You know, I'm lucky that I don't have to have like a normal nine to five job. Every day is different. Um, I'm sure it drives Jenny Potty that we can't plan anything because she'll sort of say, well, what are you doing today? And I say, well, I might be talking to somebody in Dubai at five o'clock in the morning or somebody in America at 11 o'clock at night. I don't know. They're, it's all different, but I think that's what I like. I, I don't like routine. Do you think you created that luck then? Well, created my job or created my... Well, you talked about being very lucky. Do you think you actually went and created that, that luck or do you think luck just happens in the world? Oh, I think you, I think you create your own... Yeah, maybe you create your own luck to a certain degree. I wish I created it earlier. <laughs> <laughs> that's something I, I'd love to have done, but I don't think I could have done that. But perhaps that's the journey in the wilderness that you had to go through to yeah, be I where you are now. Yeah, I suppose so. If you look at musicians 
um, they sort of say by the time you're 27, you've written all the great songs that you're going to write, or you end up in the 27 club, maybe. But hopefully I've still got some of that creativity ahead of me. I think I've had to go through an awful lot to get to where I am, and that's now benefiting me because I can then lead other people to the same utopia, maybe. But it means that I've now got less connection, maybe, with people who are under 30, which is what I'm finding nowadays, because I'm like the dad, and my, my children are now in their 30s. So it does seem sometimes that maybe I'm talking to them more paternally than sort of on a, a similar level. So I'm finding now that business coaching is the bit that's really in, in, you know, is interesting for me. I've taught an enormous amount of people to run across deserts and there's only so many back rucksacks that you can tell people that it's good to use. <laughs> Whereas in business, I think it's really interesting that um, people can achieve far more in their 35 hours or 37 and a half hours a week than they are, especially with sales teams and admin people and people that are client facing, because a lot of the time it's about people will buy you if they, you know, they'll buy, buy the product if they buy you. Yeah. Um, I'm a one man sales guy. Jenny often says to me, aren't you worried about where the next load of work's gonna come from? And I said, well, not really, it always does. But my, my diary's full, extremely full for 30 days, full for 60, and then after that, it's just a void where I don't know what's gonna happen in 60 days time, but that's all right, because I know that over the next few days, people are, are very immediate. I wanna come and see you. What are you doing tomorrow? And it's just like, well, you know, obviously I'm saving this space for you. <laughs> you know, just I, waiting for your yeah, call. Yeah, just waiting for your call. No, it's, it's like, well, you know, I can see you in 10 days' time. Somebody asked me yesterday, I want to come and see you. It's 21st of June. You come and see me on the 21st of June. Okay, it's four weeks to wait, whatever, but it's four weeks. But when you do come and see me, you've got 100% of my, you know, of my mindset and my attention. And we live in this... We live in a world of, it's that sort of Facebook, it's that TripAdvisor zone. One bad review and you're toast. So I, I can't afford to give somebody a poor experience. I've got to give them Guinness World Records, 100% value for money, because at the end of the day, everything revolves around uh, you know, people investing in me. Mm. And I've got to give them 100% back, which I don't. I wouldn't consider I ever never live up to. What are your nine Guinness World Records anyway? Oh, they're for treadmill running. Yeah. yeah, the thing that people hate doing the most. They came out in, I did them in 1998 after running 11 marathons in 11 weeks. So I thought, God, that's got to be a world record. Yeah. So I, I chipped over to um, WH Smith to get the, the, uh, the book, Guinness Book of Records. So you actually went and bought the book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd actually been given the book when I was eight in 1970. Yeah. I was going through the pages of the Guinness book. Tallest man, fattest man. I don't know. Neil Armstrong had just landed on the moon. Deep Purple with the loudest rock band. I remember that one. <laughs> 117 decibels in 1972. I don't know, or wherever it was. 
remember looking at all these different things and uh, I was always, I was wowed by just how incredible all these people were. So I went over, bought the 1998 or 1997 it would have been book and um, I was looking at the fastest marathon 206, well I won't go for that one, fastest marathon backwards, gosh that's three and a half hours, no, I won't do that one. But then I saw a lady in America run 93 miles on a treadmill. So I thought, God, I could do that. It's only 100 miles. 100 miles in a day? I could do that on the road. That's the one for me. Yeah. So um, got a treadmill. Never been on one before. Set it going. Did all the Guinness application, whatever. And I set five world records. I ran 101.36875, <laughs> to be precise, yeah. miles in a day on the treadmill. Yeah. And along the way did the quickest... 50 miles, uh, 100 miles, 12, uh, 50k, 100k, those yeah. are the five. And then I did, I ran on one for two days and then ran on one for a week, finishing off at uh, the London Marathon Exhibition and then running uh, the London Marathon the day afterwards, which then got me into doing a thousand mile race in London, um, which finished up with me running the London Marathon with Paula Ratcliffe the day she set the 215.25 world record and I ended up with Paula at the press conference the day after the race which you know was amazing which is still the most amazing athletic feat any British athlete's done mm. so yeah to end up with Paula at 2003 was just you know for an ex-smoker drinker that used to weigh a lot um was something else and I'm, I'm after the Guillain Barry I can't uh, certainly can't do any more world records but when you come to my come to our house, they're on the wall. You know, they're like, they're like the wall of fame, and they're my I don't know. Maybe they're my A level certificates in running. <laughs> um, What's the degree then? Well, I, I don't know. Maybe the maybe the thousand marathons. I think they're the they're the bit that sort of say I'm qualified to talk to you about this stuff mm. because running books. People people love a book to get inspired. I bought Runner's World magazine in 1994. And read about Anne Trayson, this American runner, who's just a world world breaking athlete. And there's a picture of her running uh, Western States endurance race, hundred mile race. And what you do is you you sort of you take that person's head off their body and you sort of put your head on. No YouTube or anything at the time, but so I thought that's what I want to do. I want to be like her. And so you I, visualized it then? Yeah, you do. I think you visualize that person that. That you want to be and I wanted to be this trail running guy that's, that's out there enjoying the sunshine and uh, the elements around you and um, the time out I think it's the time out because I've you know doing all those races it must have spent an enormous amount of, of time out of life parking up the trials and tribulations putting them to one side and just living in the moment mm. Uh, I think it's called REM state thought, where all you're doing is just thinking about the next step. Again, which is just a really interesting thing. You know, the next step, okay, I now think about the next step, and it's just that slow progression. I think I'm one of those people that can compartmentalise and you sort of put life into shoeboxes and deal with a box at a time when it comes along on the conveyor belt. So I'm, I'm blogging today about worrying because yeah. <laughs> uh, lots of people tell me they worry and I don't think I've got I, I don't think I actually have that hey really that's quite nice isn't it 
Well, I don't know. Or it's either that, or I'm I'm in complete denial <laughs> about about worrying. Yeah. But worrying's just such a waste of energy because you say, "Oh, I don't know why. Why was I worried about that?" Mm. And you think, "Well, I don't. You know, you could have spent the time doing something else, or the energy doing something else." Because most of the time, things turn out all right. Mm. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why I wasn't worried when I had GPS. I just thought, "Oh, I'll be okay." To me. What do you think success means to you? Success, that's an interesting one, isn't it? I think it's, it's, ticking, it's ticking those boxes. I don't think it's like some kind of list. People talk to me about, oh, they got their, you know, I've got this list where I've got to go and do a, you know, a bucket list. I don't think I've got a bucket list. I think it's about satisfaction. And this was only the other night. We run out of milk at home. We've got two small kids always running out of milk or whatever so trotted off down to the local um late night to pick up some milk so i was coming back with this milk in my hands and i just thought hold on a minute do you know what everything's all right the world's okay okay i just been to buy some milk but that's insignificant but we're okay at home jenny's great and you know she's been wonderful and we're all you know we're all happy there we've got some money in the bank i'm going to buy some milk without having to worry about stuff and the kids are okay Hold on, I'll just, have, I'll just stand still and take that in for a couple of minutes. So I did. And it's only on you know, Cowbridge Road, outside the Tesco, late night, thinking, hmm, this is all right. And then, and then it sort of makes you wonder, well, I wonder what everyone else is thinking about their world. And those people that are coming to see me, that are connecting with me, they're not happy with their world, just like I wasn't happy with mine back in 94. Mm. It's just that they don't know how to go about making that change. And that's how I help them. So how do you make them happy? I think I make them happier. And I think it's a very quick change. I think if people see results, they're really happy to continue. It's the, it's, it's the sort of DFS sofa, buy now, pay later thing that people don't like. They don't like investing time now for 12 months. Apps are really good on the phones. If you're in debt, it's really easy to get out of debt. You stop spending money. It's pretty obvious, but you can get an app now that says if you're saving so much every week or every day, it gives you a date when you're going to be out of debt. Mm. So when people can actually visualize when they're going to be out of debt, that's really good. So, you know, nine months time, they can actually give you a day when you're going to get out of debt. That's good to know. The thing with GBS that was interesting about that was there's no end date. So if you, if I was, if I'd have broken a leg or whatever it was when I was ill two years ago, I could have said, well, in six weeks time, my leg's going to be okay. And you sort of think, oh, well, I'll just wait six weeks and then you know, do a bit of rehab and a bit of physio and I'm going to be okay. The problem with the GBS is they sort of say, well, just shrug the shoulders. At the time, the only thing you want to know is whether you can walk again. So you ask every doctor that passes, actually you ask anybody, we'll walk. They sort of say, we don't know. And that's, and that's a frustrating thing. So maybe what I do with people is I give them some answers and people are frightened to give answers or opinion in case, I don't know, maybe we live in this litigious world where people feel that if you give someone promise and it doesn't come off, you know, there's going to be some kind of comeback. 
So if people ask me what's the best shoes to wear in Morocco, I'll tell you what the best shoes are. Um, rather than just say, well, here's three or four, make a choice. You know, I'm quite happy to go to Dixon's car phone and buy a toaster without reading 250 reviews on what's a good toaster. <laughs> Whereas I know 250 people have written down why, is it, you know, why this is a good toaster. It's like you've got nothing else better to do. Maybe it's having some direction that uh, I'm giving, giving people. Mm. Some people are like that. They like instruction, don't they? They like to know what's happening. I get, I get people ask me for um, instruction leaflets. What's going to happen when I come and see you? <laughs> you know, so, well, just come along. Mm. You don't need to know. Mm. Just turn up. Turn, I always say to people, turn up with an open mind. Uh, we'll just park up everything you've done before. And if you want to learn how to run, I'll teach you how to run. If you want to learn how not to drink, I'll show you how not to drink. But I'll tell you on the day. Up until then, don't worry about it because you're wasting your time and effort so last question then yep imagine all your friends and family are on a beach lovely sunny blue sky day yeah yeah you've hired a plane and behind the plane is oh. one of those banners with a message and this is your kind of final message your words of wisdom Oof. what would you have on that banner good, good grief and it wouldn't be all my marathons on that long <laughs> <laughs> Literally, yeah um, could be as long as you want. I don't know, actually, because I, funnily enough, although I'm quite blasé with the marath with my signature on my email, I really don't know quite what I'd write on there. Um, because m maybe there's that inner person on me that wouldn't know what to write. Um, I don't know, actually. It, it was quite unusual having that um, moment last year where I went through the thousand marathons where suddenly the spotlight turned on me and I didn't really quite know what to do. So um, my wife, my wife's a runner, that's where we met. We met at Marathon de Savile. Mm -hmm. um, she's, she's the first Brit British person ever to podium. I had these lovely glass trophies made. Um, the, the race, the race has the, uh, these amazing glass trophies, uh, thousand, thousand uh, grains of sand, a thousand. It's all engraved into this glass. They're beautiful trophies, and they're on our mantelpiece at home. You must it, have a very big mantelpiece. Well, <laughs> all my all my medals are in a bag. I don't really care actually, but hers are on the mantelpiece. And I've always, always looked at those, thinking, God, they're nice, but I'll never get one of those. Anyway, when it came up to the thousand marathons. She actually found out who the artist was in France, went away and had a special trophy made, which I knew nothing about. So at the end of the marathon in Nottingham, where I did the Thousand Marathon, she presented me with this trophy. And I was just dumbfounded. All I could do was sob. Um, but this trophy is just like the most valuable thing I've got. Uh, I'm not really a possessions man. I, I don't care about phones and computers. They're tools. Uh, I'm not interested in cars or any of that sort of thing. But this trophy is just like the best thing ever. So I don't know. Maybe it's a bit, a bit like um, the parable of the pearl or whatever it might be where you've got the guy finds the, the best pearl and all, all the other pearls are important. But, but that thing's really important. Maybe I'd take the inscription of that. Yeah. It's in French. 
But I put that on. Oh, it says a, a thousand marathons, a thousand hours, a thousand experiences, a thousand you know, and whatever. So maybe I'd put all of that uh, on the back of there, and then all of my friends and family would understand why why I've done that. Um, so I think maybe maybe that's that's what it is. Maybe, maybe it's still blank. Maybe I, I still haven't made that that epitaph. But I, I know that whatever marathon count I get to will get chipped into my headstone. <laughs> um, well, I think I think it will in that three twenty four twenty one. That's that's a really important day for me. Mm. Um, what, what I've discovered with my friend who's ill, he's he's taking out all the I call them dot days, days when nothing happens. Mm. And we get we get a few days every year. I can remember what I was doing on the second of April ninety five. Did the London Marathon, second marathon. I remember what day I bought Tubular Bells in 1970 six, my first album. Those are important days. My children's birthdays, my A levels, all those things. But he's trying to he's trying to compress, so every day's an achievement day, yeah. Because they've got limited time, you know. We've all got limited time. Um, we just got to try and make the most of it while we're here. And I think maybe that's maybe that's the key to things. I, maybe it's a clarity. I'm I'm a very black and white person. There's no fifty shades of grey. It's just come on, guys. You get one is one life, one opportunity. Let's really make it happen. And don't be bloody average. Why don't you just be awesome? Maybe just for a few days a week, even one day a week, rather than just cruise on through because it's such a waste. Um, because we just live on this amazing planet, this amazing world that some people never even leave. You know, wouldn't even leave Wales let alone go and run across the Sahara Desert or the Atacama Desert or in Jordan or some of the places that I've seen, which are just totally extraordinary uh, that everybody should see once in a lifetime. I think on that brilliant note, thank you very much, Rory Coleman. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> Thanks. And hooray! Hey, we did it. <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe, rate, and review the We Make Success Happen podcast. This is the We Make Success Happen podcast with Matt Callanan. If you've enjoyed today's episode, I would really appreciate you leaving us a great review up on iTunes or your Apple podcast app. It means a lot. And also, I will be selecting a random person or random comment each month and sending them a We Make Success Happen podcast goodie bag so leave us a nice comment thank you very much i've been matt callanan go to wemakesuccesshappen.com to check out some show notes and i'll see you on the next episode